as we open up at Genesis chapter 1, if you have your Bibles there, uh, and we're just going to read a few verses. We're looking today, i get my doofer, it's 26 and 27. Then God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What have I got up here? Let me see what I've got. Ah, right. Very different from what uh, Ryan was bringing us. But we, tell me what this is a collaboration of. Come on. KFC and? Lenin, yep, 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 Lenin. <laughs> Truth and lies, <laughs> I don't know what that would be. A uh, but there we've got some other pieces of artwork that's trying to get across a message that's trying to say something. Um, and these are just parodies of designs uh, that we know of. So the image of Stalin or the image of Lenin, for instance, would have been placed somewhere to say something, to announce something for that whole area. It was not an accident, it was just a, a nice wee reflective piece of art. It was something with deep meaning, much as KFC, the way it's been designed and the, the amount of money that's went into that, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, all of that. Um, and so we get these parodies on images and of people and stuff that we know of well. But, but now we're in the, the, the world of AI and of deep fake. This one got me for a minute or two. <laughs> I honestly, when I saw this of Pope uh, Francis, I thought, oh, come on, that's, that's, that's not right. That's Jay-Z's jacket or something like that. And that was designed by artificial intelligence, and it is pretty impressive. It's something like the Pope when he was coming out of hospital or something like that, and he had to wrap up well. But every culture, and ours included, every culture puts pressure on the Christian faith. Um, in Acts chapter 17, you will know that well, where the Athenian philosophers scoffed at the idea of the resurrection. Uh, fourth century Gnostics also were a problem for the churches. They were working out what was true and what was not true. And they just bristled at the idea of the divine becoming flesh because they looked down their nose and they despised uh, the flesh to a, a degree. In the 19th and the 20th century, you had Western modernists who could not... Uh, you were unintelligent if you believed in miracles because it was all about measurements, uh, facts, observable things, and miracles just didn't fit in about it. And so the church were under pressure about what they believed and how they practiced and went about their life. And in every age, we are called to contend for the faith that was once entrusted and delivered to the saints. And it's no different today. The pressures that are on us uh, today, I think, at the root of, of some of the most significant questions that we are being asked about our core beliefs, our orthodox, historical, tried and trusted beliefs. 
I think at the core why people are asking questions about gender, about sexuality and all of that is the question of who am I? Who, who, am, I, who am I and can I construct myself? And we all know those conversations and we all know, well, some of us know the accusations that get thrown at us as we try and engage. We know how we try to love people maybe at our university settings where questions of who am I and everything that flows from that seem to be a, a, a conversation piece at nearly every tea break or, or lunch break, etc. And the pressure to live in the way of Jesus in a culture that is putting pressure on Christianity is, is difficult. And we look to chart the way forward with that. Rather than looking at the question of who am I, which is important, we should be looking at a question of who is God and who has God revealed himself to be. According to the Bible, uh, the most fundamental answer to who am I is uh, a Latin term. Uh, and it goes, uh, if I put it up there, oh, no, I need to go back. Oh, go back. There we are. It's a Latin term. And that Latin term is um, imago dei. I-M-A-G-O-D-E-I. And it's ancient and it's Latin because we've not changed in our understanding of who we are. And that is, we are made in the image of God, you and I. Whether you're, whoever you may be, whoever you say you are, you are made in the image of God. That is at the core of the Christian faith, our belief. So ancient, we've not changed it and went for a different word. So I'm going to look at that. I'm going to look at Imagio Dei. What, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Just me and you, uh, us, Jock Tamson's Bairns, uh, what does this mean? And hopefully by the end of this, you have a better understanding. So here's a, a few images up here. Many scholars draw a parallel between the image of God in Genesis and the images of kings in the ancient world. Um, I think that's um, Augustus, no Augustus, is that Nero in the middle maybe? I think this might be King Xerxes and, and that will be an Egyptian god. And uh, rulers at this time couldn't be everywhere at all places. Rulers today can't do that, but we've obviously got technology and all sorts of ways of putting our influence in our kingdom. But back then, to show that they had influence over that area, much like posters of Lenin and Stalin that would be in every place in the, the Soviet bloc, kings and rulers would put statues of themselves, monuments in the, every area of their kingdom to say that they had influence, they were the ruler over uh, that area. They, the rule extended there. So in 2003, the image for me that demonstrated that Saddam Hussein was no longer the ruler over Iraq was this image here. Very powerful image. It speaks a lot of words. To do that and then afterwards to see Iraqi men taking their sandals and hitting their sandals on Saddam's face demonstrated that Saddam Hussein no longer had authority and ruled over that area. And yet that is the purpose 
of um, an image. Anyone recognise that? What was that? Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. So this is a made-up image. Um, this is an idol. And an idol is a physical object that represents the god in the temple. And this is a made-up one. You know, it's from the first scene of Indiana Jones and Tem Tem the first one. Yeah, yeah, the first one. And uh, so it's not that the idol itself was God, but it represented the God, the deity, in that place, in that temple. It was meant to symbolize that the God is present. Very important. Not that the carved wood itself, although some people may think that the deity, um, which the word became, uh, was in the carved image. But that itself said, because this image is in this temple, my God, my deity is present with us here. Therefore, biblically, what do we do with that? I've got a few thoughts on this. We're still always looking at this question. What does it mean? Carol, Eden, Mayette, Stephen, uh, Garth. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Biblically, humanity, those who are made in the image of God, and that means everyone, are placed in God's kingdom as his representatives. On the sixth day when God had made all the kingdoms and then had filled all the kingdoms, the kingdoms of the air, the sea, the land, and then filled them with uh, full of life and full of creation, God placed us to rule, to be his representatives to that creation. So that when that creation looked at humanity to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve reflected the character of God. I know this is not new to you, but for some of you who have not got a clue what this whole uh, Imago Dei, this made in the image of God is all about, this is important. This is important uh, basic Christian theology of who we are and therefore what we are called to do. Richard Middleton puts it this way in his book, The Liberating Image. Image of God means that humanity has been given power. Sometimes we've not, a lot of the times we've not used our power or dominion very well. Power to share in God's rule or administration of the earth's resources and creatures. And with this in mind, I read this again. Genesis 1, chapter uh, 26 and 27. God says, let us make man in our image, mankind, humanity, humankind. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Scholars and theologians are, are saying that here is the first time you see the Trinity, maybe not mentioned by name, because it never is that word used throughout Scripture, but inferred here. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And again, verse 27, so God, Elohim, created man in his own image. In the image of Elohim, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Humanity created on the sixth day, representing Elohim, God, Yahweh on earth, being given authority to over everything that was being created up to that point, that has been, and all the animals 
that inhabit the earth, I guess, at verse, uh, days four and five. Have you got that? Have, have I managed to wear you out in that one? And you will know representatives, okay, uh, idols uh, in that temple represented that the God was present. The temple of the earth, which is a reflection, I guess, of the heavens, just as a, uh, the, the earth being a temple, being the garden, being that beautiful place, that we are there fearfully and wonderfully made to represent God. Yes, all of this is pre-fall, but it's still significant to um, get this across. We are God's representatives with authority because we have been made in the image of God. Correct? Correct. Great, great. Let's see what else we've got here. Okay, I'm putting all that up there. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 20. If you want to, you can flick there. It's just a, a... uh, a Bible, it's a book to the, to the right. Um, and you'll know this, this is the Ten Commandments. So what does it mean uh, to, to be made in the image of God? Exodus 20, Ten Commandments. The first two were wholly out of sync with the religions uh, in that area of the ancient world too. The pantheon of gods. You know, and there was a lot of fear involved in, in having gods for everything. If you were going to go fishing, let's pray to the God of the sea that we would be safe so they would uh, pour something into the water. Um, the, the, if you were going a long journey along certain roads, there was a God of that road that they would uh, give a sacrifice to, financial or whatever it may be, so that they would be, remain safe. There was a lot of fear. You were scared to step out the door in case you didn't please a God, even a God you did not know. Thus, Athens in the book of Acts, and there was an altar to an unknown God. They were scared that they were missing a God out. And yet God, Yahweh, speaks to his people who he's called out of slavery. They've been formed as a people in slavery. They're now about to go into the promised land. They're just getting to know this God the creator of heavens and earths, and God saying, okay, this is how we remain pals, for want of a better term. This is how you can remain close to me. Uh, you are in sin. You've been, re- this is, so this is post-fall. There is sinfulness, there's rebellion in your lives. So let's work out how we can be in relationship. And here's some commandments that are for your good. I often say, and forgive me if you're from Ireland, because my roots are from Ireland, but the Ten Commandments should not be read like this. I am the Lord your God who brought the, uh, you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no God before me. Sorry, apologize. I grew up, uh, <laughs> that's not how it's delivered. If you hear the Ten Commandments like that, you're missing the heartbeat of God. Do you get me on it? If you're hearing the Ten Commandments orated like that, you're not hearing the Father heart of God. But yet God, um, the first two, wholly out of sync with the ancient worldhood, all of these gods and who they worship through idols. The Israelites were told in uh, verse 3, I am the only God you will worship. Therefore, in verses 4 and 5, don't worship any idols at all. Don't even make an idol that you think represents me. Yahweh cannot be formed in an idol. 
you will not make a representation of me in this idle form. Why? Go back to the first point. Who are representatives of God in creation? Us. We are God's representatives in creation. God does not need a little Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever. And that was the first one. Uh, uh, made up idol. Because we are representatives. Unlike the other gods, Yahweh is distinct from what he has made. He is the creator God, not the God that's been created. Somebody's getting giggles over there. <laughs> Get it out. Go and laugh. Good. Do you need a glass of water? Do you need to go to the toilet? <laughs> Sorry. I know it's nothing to do with me because I've got good ears. God cannot be captured. His representation cannot be captured in an idol or a statue. Moreover, we, humanity, are a living image. Roy is a living image reflecting the character of God and increasingly becoming like Christ as well as Nikki and so many others of us. So, I think that's all that done. Yep. Right, then Psalm 2. Again, I'm still trying to flesh out this thing. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? So, in the ancient Mesopotamian world, kings were the representative rulers. God had appointed and anointed kings. Some kings even well, claimed that they were demigods or they were living representatives of God. So people bowed down and worshipped them. Psalm 2 is a great psalm that speaks into this world, a world where the Israelites walked and talked and lived, but they were distinct in their understanding of who God was and who were image bearers of God. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the, peop and the uh, peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. He breaks the chains, they say, and, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and it goes on and it goes on. But that, that verse 2 says of the king is an anointed one. So Israel understood their kings as being anointed. That's very important. But then it goes on and, and it also says the king is not only anointed, the king is installed on Zion, my holy hill. I'm asking you to park your thoughts on Jesus here. Because we know this has been used, rightly so, to reflect Jesus, his anointed one on Zion, the holy mountain and all of that. But this was a psalm for the coronation of a king. Israel looked to their kings as being anointed, as being established by God. There was authority in that and, in, and it was important. But verse 7 holds the heart of this. You are my son, today I have become your father. God has put Israel's king, whom he calls a son, whether it be David or whatever, uh, he has put the king as his son on the throne to rule over his people in his behalf. It's a father-son relationship. Yahweh and the king. But importantly, Israel never, ever had a history of worshipping the king. 
other nations did. They were demigods, worship them. Uh, if you don't uh, bow down, me, is it Daniel and, and his friends, if you don't bow down before the king of Mesopotamia, is it Babylon, whatever, then you will be put to death. They would not worship the king as a representative of God because God's representatives are mankind and not one person, even though that person is son, even though that person is holy and anointed. And that's why the prophets were sent. What were the prophets good at? Pointing the finger at the, the rulers and the king and calling them to account, putting them in their place. I'm not sure if that was the case in any other religions, but the prophets sent by God would do all sorts of things to condemn the religious life and the ruling life. You have overstepped the mark in what you are meant to do. Are you still with me? Try my very best here. So, in some respect, the good and the great represent God as image bearers. If the king is a son and anointed and thrown in Mount Zion and he was a normal king, they do represent God. But the role of the image bearer was confirmed not in the good and the great alone, but in all people. And this is unique to Israel. And it's been passed to us. Just a psalm to the, the right is incredible in this. Psalm 8, verse 4 says this, of us. Now I'm going to uh, later on just talk about where you may be at. But if you're in a place where you feel trash, if you feel failure, if you feel weak, if you feel frustrated at yourself, if you have a low opinion of yourself because your school teacher says bad things about you or you're still dealing with things from childhood and it's came through to adulthood and it's still at the core of your being and you're struggling, of, of loving yourself even, Psalm 8 says incredible things uh, from God to us. What is mankind that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and splendor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. Again, we may, as, as people after the resurrection, can think of Jesus in those verses and rightly so. But this verse, spoken about image bearers, representatives, the good and the great and the lowly and the meek is speaking to us as well. You and I, God is mindful of us. God cares. I know the very hairs or lack of on your head. I know the thoughts in your heart. Where can I go from your presence? If I go up, up in the heavens and I'll make my bed in the depths and the darkness, even there you're with me. Where can I flee from your presence? And you are worth more than very many sparrows. You and I as image bearers. You have made them a little lower than the angels. You have a note at the bottom of your Bible probably, maybe an A or an X, and it takes you down to the bottom. And the word angels, it quite possibly will say, or God. You may have a translation that actually says, like the N. LT, you have made them a little lower than God. Or if you've got an Orthodox Jewish Bible there, you will, your Bible will read, yet you made them a little lower than Elohim, God. You 
and I. Who am I? God is mindful of me. I am an image bearer. He has made me a little lower than God because he delights in me. Fearfully and wonderfully he has made me. That is who you and I are. I hope I am painting a picture of what it means to be made in the image of God. I think Psalm 8 is fantastic at bringing that out. And of course, it, it requires a lot more time to patiently get through it. But there is nothing in all creation that has a higher status than humanity. You and I. Who am I? Made in the image of God. This is who you and I am. And I come to that again. I've got no notes for this. I'm going to keep this short. I say this all the time. So what? So what? When we leave here, what has that got to do with us? Well, some of us still have a huge barrier between us and God. We may not see it, but we feel it. We may be rebellious. We have walked the way of Jesus and now we find ourselves, and we know it and we find it hard to admit it, but we know we have erred from the way of Jesus. And therefore, there's a huge barrier up. None of us here are perfect. I ain't closer to God because I'm two steps up. I journey with you with the same issues, with the same desires, with the same challenges. Sometimes I walk in the dust of my rabbi and sometimes I am rebellious and I feel it. My wife sees it all the time because I snap or I become quiet as darkness covers my, my vision. So there are some of us who are not walking the way of Jesus. You and I know that it takes a decision, it takes a repentance. Some here have never walked in the way of Jesus. We're still checking Jesus out. We don't really know. It is a huge step. It is and it is not. I love the Steph McLeod song that says, when I found Jesus, he was holding on to me. Steph McLeod, who is an incredible Scottish songwriter, psalmist, whose story is alcoholism and continues to battle that and was at the conservatoire, I think, in Glasgow, but then was on the streets in Edinburgh and received Christ through the ministry, I think, of Edinburgh City Mission or something like that. When I found Jesus, he was holding on to me. Sometimes it just takes us the boldness to say, Jesus, as I know someone close to our family did a week or two ago, if you are really there, reveal yourself to me. We are called to walk in the dust of our rabbi. We are called to be people who look at the Sermon on the Mount and desire to see the teaching of Christ, the manifesto of Christ, reflect in us as we are image bearers, as we are being, being transformed, metamorphosized, if that's the right word, I don't know, into the likeness of Christ. We see it. We see it in one another. Something of Jesus that just inspires us. And maybe we don't see it enough in ourselves because we're more critical of ourselves. So whether you're going to the, the hospital to work tomorrow, whether you are retired tomorrow, whether you are stay-at-home mum, a student, whether you, whatever you are doing tomorrow, at that mission field, and that is what it is, remind us, we need to pray for the teachers and the, 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 the children. 
Wherever God has called you to go tomorrow as an image bearer, you are a missionary. Not just Claire and, and, and Charlie and Sandra and all of these other guys. You are a missionary representing Jesus wherever God has called you to be. That is a huge responsibility. And by his grace and his favor and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit and a willing heart, we are able to be that being transformed into increasing glory. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 3.14. We are being transformed into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory. I'm going to finish there. I think I have landed that to the best of my ability. Um, can we pray? I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond. We rarely do this here. I will not, there's no emotionalism, there's no piano playing. This is just a decision between you and the Lord. I will keep my eyes open just to acknowledge any response. I hope you trust me to not go and gab, but if I feel appropriate, I will approach you at some point this week. And I just invite you as all of our eyes are closed, I invite those who feel that they would love to know Jesus. And then by putting up their hand, it is an intentional step that they would do so now. I invite those who know because they know that there is rebellion in their life. They don't have a way through. They may even enjoy that. But they know that it's contrary to the way of Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. I invite you just now as a first step of repentance or a step of repentance to raise your hand just now. And I invite all of us to stand. Father, I pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that you go before us by your Spirit. I thank you that you've not left us as orphans. Uh, you're good, you're good, and your love endures forever. That is who you are. I pray, Father, for our teachers and our staff in the schools and ask, Lord, that they would... Uh, know your favour as they uh, st step out of a holiday into a working practice tomorrow. I pray, Lord, that they would have sparkling eyes. I pray that in the name of Jesus. That they would take time at the beginning of their day tomorrow just to um, ask for your strength, ask for your leading, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of the day and that you would send them, Lord, to be your ambassadors in those schools. And I pray, Lord, as the, our children fast approach Wednesday, that again they would, um, eh, they would know friendship when they go into the school. They would know kindred spirits. That they would bring any fears that they have before you and that you would meet them in their fears and give them strength. 
And that, Lord, that you would return them to the families at the end of the day with good stories, I ask in the name of Christ Jesus and for your glory. Amen.